0: Welcome to the Why God Why podcast episode. We exist to respond to the questions you don't feel comfortable asking in church. And we are brought to you by the Lumavaz Network out of Saddleback Church. I am here with our remarkable producer, Nathan Yoder, and my fantastic friend and co-host, Aaron Mercer.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Peter. It's good to be on with you. By the way, we're looking very, I know this isn't Christmas time, but we look very Christmassy today for some reason, I
0: don't know. Well, you know, we should celebrate Christmas every day. There you go. go. All right. Boom. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, what a great way to start. We are asking the question, why can't we get along with our neighbors of other races? We're very excited to have uh, author and professor, Dr. George Yancey. Uh, he recently published uh, the book Beyond Racial Division. As always, we're thankful for Krista Clayton from InterVarsity Press. Uh, two weeks uh, starting after this podcast, you have a two-week window to buy this book with a 30% discount by using Why God. And um, we're just really, you know, we've kind of been on a journey on this podcast um, in talking about... Uh, racial reconciliation. And, you know, to have George back on again, he was talking with us about politics during our last election. So he just kind of signs up for all the tough Tough episodes.
1: <laughs> well, I I'm really thankful for this opportunity, uh, Doctor Yancey. I'll, tr- I'll try to call you George. I know that's it's hard though because I'm you know talking to a professor. I don't know if I could do it or not, <laughs> but I'll try. Um, but I really appreciate you being on this uh, this co- this conversation with us. And I know you were on uh, the Why Guy Why podcast uh, a while back, uh, but that was it was really before I would started doing a lot of these with with Peter. Um, and you know I've I've read about you, but I'd love to hear some more of your story. Maybe that, maybe our listeners would too, uh, just to hear how you, uh, where you came from, how you got to this place and how you got to wanting to write this book.
2: Sure. So, I mean, you know, I've been talking about racial issues for, what, I'm trying to say whether it's two or three decades, I think it's three decades, so I, I'm old. Uh, but I really uh, spent... Uh, like about 2010, I decided that I didn't want to write about race anymore or, or do research on it. I want to study other things. I didn't get back into it till about 2020. And, of course, you know, it was George Floyd. It was Albury. You know, maybe it was the pandemic. <clears throat> but uh, I think God worked within me to really want to get back into this. And, and I guess part of it is uh, my driving force is – the question I ask is, does my Christian faith have something to say about race that you don't see otherwise uh, or easily see otherwise? And I came to the conclusion, yes, it does. And but I don't see Christians doing it. So I, I just want to, uh, you know, say, hey, we don't have to do what the rest of the world does on, on racial issues. We can do something different, something that, that's more effective, that works. Uh, and And so that's been sort of where I'm at today.
0: I you know I love when you kind of paint a picture for us Uh, usually we don't jump this direct but why don't you paint for our picture paint a picture for our listeners about how you're processing through being a follower of Jesus how that relates to racism and what you just talked Mm -hmm. about there because that's pretty powerful and I think we should kind of sit with that as you kind of process for our listeners
2: okay so uh you know, I guess in one sense, my understanding of race really happened in grad school. At uh, grad school at the University of Texas, uh, very secular, so it wasn't like a lot of deep biblical thinking. But in grad school, I, I learned about a more secular mi- mindset in the Enlightenment movement and in today, where we as humans. Have the power to create some version of paradise and, and you, you can see in the works of marx and, and some of the other uh and you know Enlightenment thinkers that they were out there that we you know if we use reason rationality we will figure it all out and we'll create paradise as a christian while i was learning this i was like wait that's not what i believe uh and in fact i think the evidence shows otherwise that humans are not capable of creating paradise for i don't even have to go to the bible i mean you can look at group interest theory you can look at ethnocentrism you can look at you know confirmation bias how we tend to create societies that work for us and not against and against other people and so you know at that point i saw a a fundamental difference between christianity and humanism and and why this pertains to race so when i dived into in studying race when, when i got involved into really wanting to deal with something like race that perspective came to my mind and it occurs to me what we so often see in our society is this group or that group says look you do what we say and that deals with racism that's the same perspective of hey we can create paradise Rather, what I, what I think God wants us to do is to learn from each other because we all have our, 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 our narrow-mindedness, our, our fallacies, the way we see things. And we learn from each other. We can build on each other's ideas. And, yeah, it would be great if God just came down and said, hey, I want you to do A, B, C, and D. But I think there's a reason why God doesn't do that. I think God knows that if that was taking place, then what will happen is I have the answers. You do A, B, C, and D, and you follow me. And, and, and rather, we need to learn from each other. And I, I think that that's just missing today in mm. our racial discussion. Mm. It's, I have the answers, you need to do what I say, or what my group of people say, and then we solve racial problems. I don't think they get solved that way. Mm. I, I think they get solved when we can have what I now call collaborative conversations with one another, where we build on each other's ideas. And, and that's goal-oriented, that finds solutions. I think that's how we get past this. I I don't think we get past this any other way.
1: You, you, uh, you mentioned, you've been, you had been talking about this for a number of decades. Um, and then, you know, really wanted to get, you know, talking about it a lot more, especially in, in recent years. And I know you just mentioned, uh, the importance of having group conversations about, um, about racial matters, about racial division, um, some of these really tough issues our, our country has been dealing with for a long time. Um, but in particular, the last several years, it's been accentuated. I'm curious what, you know, as as you have seen, I felt like there was a, t- there was a period of time when there were a lot of conversations that were happening, um, especially in 2020 uh, and, and uh, 2021. Um, what have you seen come out of those? And I'm also curious, do you think that there, those conversations are still going strong or is this something that, is cooling and it shouldn't. I mean, what, what's your perspective on that?
2: I think there's been a lot of talk about racial issues. Mm. Well, I don't think there's been a lot of productive conversations on racial issues. You know, there's been a lot of people who talk to others and tell them what they want to do mm. rather than talk to others, listen to others and try to build on each other's ideas. I, I think there's been a, a dearth of that when it comes to racial issues. So, <clears throat> So yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of talk, but look at the nature of the talk. Uh, you know, I remember seeing articles. You know, here's what white people need to do: we are invite black person, or you know, from white person, why do why do black people keep talking about race? So that's not that's not having conversations. So yeah. there's been talk, but has there really been conversations? I think there there's not been enough conversation.
1: Do you think that do you think that there are Um, terms that I mean what's getting in the way of a I I totally resonate with you about talking about there's lots of people I feel like this is in the social media age too there's a lot of people who just talk past each other a lot and maybe aren't listening very much and and for a conversation you need both speaking and listening Um, are there what's getting in the way of that is it just people are is it people are dug in or are people using words that each other don't understand what's the what's the disconnect
2: yeah, uh, I don't know if it's a lack of understanding, to be honest. I mean, I think people uh, people do use words and they use them differently, but I think people kind of know how people are using the words today. So I I would not say it's a lack of understanding per se. I I would argue <clears throat> that uh, it's probably more the formal that people people who the ones who are talking about race have a perspective and they and, and they're sort of as you say dug in on it. Uh, now there's. Probably half the country is not talking about it hmm. and, and don't want to in part because they don't want to get involved with the crossfire. Uh, if we create an environment where people could talk and have conversations, I think we could bring more people into the conversation. But the ones who are talking, I mean we know the format, you, you get someone on MSNBC or Fox or CNN and you, you get if, if either you get everyone who's on a certain side of an issue and they just feed each other, or you you set up this sort of debate, which is really not a conversation, which is you know people trying to score points on each other, mm. and you bring in social media. I think you see the same thing in social media. How often in social media do people post stuff to score points, you know, mm. to uh, to to attack the others? And how much do they do they post up because they want to bring a new a, a new idea or a nuance and have discussions? And I think we. If we're honest, it's a lot more of the former and not enough of the latter. And I think that that's part of what gets in our way. So paint us a
0: picture of building on ideas of an issue where you'd love to see that happen in conversation.
2: Okay. So, uh, I'm, I mean, almost any racialized issue, it could be that. I mean, we could talk about immigration. You know, what are we going to do about immigration? You know, are we going to make it a, this political football? I would even say that we kind of know what the solution is going to be, uh, both on the left and the right. We know the solution is probably going to be some form of path to legalization or citizenship. So people are already here. Some sort of strong borders, you know, whether it's a wall or not, I think it's immaterial. But some sort of strong borders. <clears throat> I think that's going to be the solution. Now, I'm not saying that's my solution. I think that's the solution that people are going to be able to do. But we don't get there because we rather score points. So I think immigration is a good issue. I think we kind of know, uh, you know, we can look at how, how do we teach about race in, in, in our, in our, uh, high schools and junior highs, you know, what people are arguing CRT, you know, I don't even go on going into, you know, are they defined correctly or not? How are we going to teach about race in a way that, uh, that people can, uh, can come to agreement on and 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 build on each other's ideas rather than you know we're going to fight over crt or we're going to fight over this we're going to fight over that Uh, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing don't hear me saying disagreement is wrong i'm saying that the fight just for score points that's what our problem is so you know almost any racial issue you can think of you know working about voting rights uh, you know, how are we going to manage the the competing interests on different sides of issues? Any racial issue, we could have a good discussion if we decide to. But if we're dug in on our position, say we're not going to move, we're not going to compromise, then that is the problem.
1: If there's a if there's a community that really wants to, you know, I uh, to to have a good conversation to actually seek some sort of understanding, hopefully healing, um, what, what would you suggest? Where, 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 should they start? Where, what's a, what is a good topic or topics sounds too. I think topic sounds, doesn't sound like the right word, but what, what is the issue that they should talk about first? Um, and, and listen first on what, whatever side or yeah. even not a side, just maybe coming at it from not knowing anything, what should they be talking about first?
2: Well, I, you know, I think the issue that is most pressing on where that community's mind is where they should start. And mm-hmm. I think it should start with a single issue, not try to solve everything at once. Because, <clears throat> you know, you know what happens in your relationship or a friendship and you try to solve everything at once is you solve nothing. Because you jump mm-hmm. from one issue to another. So I think they need to focus in on. So that may be in a school setting. That may be, you know, how are going to teach U.S. history? Mm-hmm. And it may be something as simple as that. If we're looking at communities, they may be, you know, what are we going to do about policing in, in – Communities of 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 color, of, of communities that are people who are uh, marginalized. Uh, you know, it could be in, in our government. What are we going to do with our government as far as trying to mitigate the historical effects of racism in uh, people of color? You know, are we going to create something akin to affirmative action, or something that is uh, affirmative action light, or or some a different method? Uh, how are we going to meet these different needs? So I think that the issue is less important. I think the issue is important in that it's something that has to be pertinent to that community. But I think it's less about the issue and more about how do we learn how to discuss these issues. So what we're really missing is we have not learned how to have these discussions in constructive ways. Mm. We've learned how to uh, score points. we learn how to have arguments, how to have debates. But not have how to have constructive conversations. And I think that that is the the key. I, I think we get that right, then the issue becomes secondary. We'll get to the other issues eventually. So you start. I rather you start off with the wrong issue, but discuss that better than the right issue, and do what we've been doing in the past. So the issue to me is important, but it's secondary to how do we have conversations that are productive rather than destructive.
0: So the subtitle of your book, "Beyond Racial Division," um, talks about how colorblindness and anti-racism are incomplete solutions. So I mm-hmm. I think this is helpful for our listeners. Um, how how are these how are these two issues related and disrelated? Um, and then kind of landing on that subtitle, just process for our listeners because they'll hear those two ideas and. Both sides of those issues will come in, you know, both people, you know, whether they look at it positive or negatively, but just kind of give your view, because I think that that subtitle is pretty powerful for where we're at.
2: Okay, so I think it's pretty clear on how they are, how they disagree. I mean, uh, colorblindness says don't focus on race at all. Anti-racism says, you know, race I mean, the anti-racists basically argue that race is foundational in, in the United States, and so we have to focus on racism, that, that it is, you know, that, that is multifaceted, that's pervasive, uh, and so we have to focus in on it. So, you know, and the solutions are going to be very di- disparate, obviously. When, 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 you, when, when your solution is, hey, ignore racism versus, hey, we've got to really focus in on all this multifaceted, pervasive racism, you have different solutions. And so I think that the differences are pretty clear. What people don't realize is that there's a similarity. <clears throat> and the similarity is this. Both the colorblindness and the anti-racist, both of them say, we a solution. You do what we say and we solve racism. And both of them are very proactive. And I think that the anti-racism people will see it more clearly on how proactive it is. You know, we see anti-racism this and we see, you know, we're going to do anti-racism that. So I don't think I have to make the case for that. The colorblindness people tend to think well, colorblindness is just you know ignore race and just leave us alone. So, about I think about two years now, uh, I was on Facebook and I was talking. You know, I have three three boys, uh, very young boys, and I was talking about you know as an African American uh, raising boys who are I'm interracial married, but raising boys who could be perceived of as men of color. uh, How do I talk to them about? dealing with the police and, and and how do i approach dealing with racism and i just put that out there for, for other people who are raising kids of color uh be they a person of color or not when i got you know while i got some advice what i got was a lot of pushback from some of my white friends who are saying why are you even bringing up race you should be ignoring race and make it raise them to be good christian men and ignore the race now here's what's interesting uh What they were doing was not just saying to themselves, look, I'm gonna raise my kid to be colorblind and and that's good. They're saying, I should raise my kid to be colorblind. Mm. This is, when you think about how intrusive that is, you know, that's saying, hey, it's not enough for me to raise my kid. Everyone else has to raise their kids to be colorblind. Colorblindness is also intrusive. It's also saying, you do what we say and we solve racism. So in that way, they're both similar in that they're both built on the Enlightenment idea that we can create utopia as humans, and we can figure out the solutions and then impose those solutions on other individuals. And that they really are the same, even though they come to very different answers as to what those solutions will be. So
0: let me let me kind of come back to that Facebook question. Um, <laughs> you know, Aaron and I are parents. Um, we'll just talk specifically of me. I have two daughters at the recording of this podcast. They're both about to have birthdays. They're gonna be two and five. Um, as somebody that that studies sociology and anthropology, you know, this is what you do. you know, what encouragement for me would you give on even kind of having starting conversations, you know about this? because i I think it's important because at one point, you know, my daughter's probably gonna come back from school and talk about an issue. You know, how would you encourage parents? I think it's pretty powerful just to hear your perspective on that.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, when it comes to the parent thing, so your, your kids are two and five, so they're a little bit younger than mine. Uh, my kid, is, my oldest is seven. My second is six. And my the baby is, is, is four. Uh, you know, so parenting is a challenge, as you well know. Uh, anyone with kids know that parenting is a challenge and a challenge on many fronts. And of course, the Russia front is one of them. So here's what my wife and I, here's, and I don't say this as an expert, even though I study this stuff. When it comes to parenting, I'm I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm, a novice like everyone else. This is the first time I've had a seven-year-old. Next year, the first time I had an eight-year-old and that sort of thing. So different challenges, all that sort of stuff. You, know, you think you know how to parent until you become a parent. It's that, it's that sort of thing. So, I, so I always hesitate to get parents' advice, uh, and uh, there's not a real lot of great research out there, from my point of view, on how you raise kids in a way that I I would want my kids to be raised on racial issues. So I'll just tell you, I'll just give you a couple of things that we're doing, and you can take it for what it is. First thing we're doing is we're exposing our kids, you know, our our boys, to uh, to racial issues. Now, we're, what we're not doing is we're not like sitting them down and going, "Hey, you know." Uh, uh, blacks cannot vote reasonably until the, the, the you know the 1960s and 70s. We're not we're not going we're not going all into slavery. Although they will read some books that contain some of that in there. But we're we're taking them. You know, we, we just took them a couple of weeks ago to MLK uh, walk and and, and such. I won't say it's a protest, was a walk and celebration in, in a sense. We'll take them to Juneteenth. <clears throat> you know, the topic will come up. And we'll discuss the topic. Uh, we, we, uh, we did have this book; it's a cool book that had no words, but it showed a, a, a girl hiding a runaway slave. And so, so we let the conversation come up naturally. We don't try to force it on them, but we expose them to it so that it will come up, uh, you know. And so, I think that that's you know that that's a, a way we want to do that. As it comes up, then we try to put our values in, into our into our boys. We try to discuss, you know. We discussed the reality of race, uh, what, what happened in the past. We've not gotten to really discussing, because they're still young about institutionalized or structural forms of, of, of racialized society and how they may impact people. We will, I, I think we will get to that. But at seven, he's, he's not ready for that yet. But we're exposing him to that. The other thing that I, that I think that we're doing, which, once again, you know, this is trial and error for us, And I think this is going to help them in a lot of phases of life. We used to, when there was conflict, step in, adjudicate the conflict, and decide who was right and who was wrong. And there are times in which you have to do that. You know, when one boy hits another boy, there's no, hey, you know, I mean, you have to address the violence. And then if there's something else, then you address that. But that has to be addressed first. But as much as possible, what we want to do is have the boys work it out together. Mm. Uh, And the reason why we want to do this is we want them to learn the skills of how to take into consideration someone else's perspective and find solutions that everyone can live with. And so we're getting better at it and they're getting better at it. You know, they sometimes, sometimes they can't find, a lot of times they find solutions. You know, they're arguing over toys and who has what. And rather than saying, okay, you're going to have this, you're going to have that. We ask them to work it out. And At first it seems like, it's kind of lazy. You know? I mean, you're a parent, you should go in, and you should, you know, go ahead and parent. But actually, it actually is working out because we're giving them principles. We're, 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 we're you know, say, hey, have you thought about what he needs? And, and, and how can we make this fair for everyone? Everyone seems fair. I think that I'm, my hope is over time, when racial conflict emerges, these same skills that they will have to adjudicate it, to uh, to look at the perspective of others and to find solutions that everyone can live with will come to the forefront. And not just on racial issues, but on other issues. So what we're hoping that in doing this, we're making them not just better on racial issues, but ideally better better fathers in one day, better husbands, better friends, better workers. Uh, you know, we're hoping to do that with them. And so that's kind of where we're at. It'll change, obviously, as they, uh, as they get... Older and get into the preteens and teens, and then we'll we'll deal with, with some deeper issues. I will say that my my seven year old has read uh, uh, books that uh, Little House in the Prairie books, and that book, those books are surprisingly very racialized. Uh, mm-hmm. There there was one uh, book where the father uh, put on blackface. You know this because this, this book was written a long time ago of Blackface and perform. And so my wife, you know, she talked to me about what that is and what that meant and, and, and how that's offensive and things of that nature. And so, you know, just reading old literature, will get to some of these racialized issues uh, as we read to our kids. We just have to make sure that we don't, you know, obviously there's some things that you don't want your kids to have, at, you know, they're, they're not ready for it. And so I'm not saying give them everything. And, and, and you know, I don't want you know, i don't want them to watch the movie Amistad, for example or something like that i mean there are things that there's too intense for them and, and you know your kids and, and so but you, you can't shelter them from from all of the you know don't shelter them from the ugliness, ugliness of racism and, and what's happened historically as well as how it may play itself out today hmm. and just expose them to it and just let the conversation go that's once again I'm, i don't say this as an expert i say this as someone trying to discover it as i go and maybe when i figure this all out i'll write a book on raising our kids. <laughs> To engage in club conversations and, and to deal with the risk. but right now I'm I'm just trying to figure it out myself. I gotta figure out my kids first before I try write that book.
1: No, well, thank you for sharing that. And I just want to jump off Peter's question actually, um, and you know what you just shared. You were talking about if a if a if a child, if you know if someone's kid comes and sees something at school or who knows what you know what what causes the question to come up, whether it's a book or something else, and um, or something they saw on TV or whatever. But let's say, I mean, so you mentioned earlier, there are, there's lots of talking going on, not a lot of conversation. And then there's a whole bunch of people who are just not in the conversation because either they're, either they don't know about it, they are oblivious to it, or maybe they're worried. They just don't want to get involved because it's, you know, tense and there's everybody, there's a lot of arrows being shot back and forth. Um, but let's say there's a community. I'm going to turn this towards like a, a church setting now. Um, like let's say that, and I don't want to say that there's like a a violent issue. Let's leave a. I mean that that definitely definitely uh, is a is a catalyst. Un, unfortunately. I mean it's very sad. And uh, but uh, let's go. Let's get to some of the other th- things that sometimes will catalyze conversations. Uh, there's a church community and there's a. Um, you know, there's a, big, a debate within the community over a over a curriculum, maybe at the school board or um, something like that. You know, there where it's not it's not the intensity of a violent situation, but there's definitely passions there. Um, how does a, how does a how how can a church um, or some Christian community? you know we they know that the people in their community are seeing this and it's definitely firing it's firing emotions up um and people might not know what to do with that they might not know what what all the everything means how does how does a church engage that or how does a christian community engage that in a in a productive way where do people where do people start if they want to have some sort of if they want to engage the conversation
2: yeah so uh you know i think ideally what a church should be doing, and what I want to try to help churches to do, and I'm trying to work on some material to help churches do, is have a conversation before we get to the uh, to the controversy. And so, if the church is already in conversations with people of different race racial groups and clarity, trying to figure out why people believe what they believe, curious about you know how people come to these conclusions, uh, then when the when the controversy happens, it's not as big of a oh you know. I didn't know they were going to think like that. Oh, you know, how could they think this way? You may not agree with them, but you know why they're thinking the way they are. And so I think that, you know, that's that's the first starting point. But if you're not done that and the controversy happens, uh, you could, at, at, you know, a church could create a space and, and, and teach people how to have productive conversations and then let people understand why people want, uh, you know, certain uh, discourses taught in the school, or why people are afraid of those discourses, and not go back to stereotypes or recriminations or, or things of this nature. I think that the church can create a space for that, uh, and uh, a- and then you know uh, within their own body. Now, wasn't mean as far as the school board menu or something like that. You know, I think that we Christians have to figure out have to we have to get our own house in order first. I, I'm hesitant about Christians going, I mean, if, if, if you feel called to go and, and protest something, you know, okay. But I'm hesitant to say, hey, this is how we're going to express our racial concerns right now until we figure figured out how we can have better conversations. Then we have something to teach people. But if we're, you know, if we're taking sides and just taking the talking points on one side or, or another and just going to a school board meeting, uh, then we're not offering anything that they can't get from anywhere else. And so what good are we? So I think that it's better for us to get our own house in order, to learn how we have these productive conversations first, and then we can go and we can, uh, you know, we can be the light to the world. Uh, and so that's kind of where you know, what I would like to see happen uh, in the Christian community.
1: What 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 is the the ideal target for you know what should a a church or some other Christian community, but um, you know, whether it's Christian neighbors or whatever, but let's just say a church, what, what should be, what should be the goal? Um, What's the ideal that they're trying to get to that then they can have something productive to say to the rest of the community. But what, what, what are they aiming for amongst themselves?
2: I think what they're aiming for is how can we discuss racialized problems and find solutions? We bring everyone together. So, you know, what I advocate is, you know, active listening, effective communication, try to find solutions that bring in the concerns of other people and see if you can come to consensus. Learning that process, I think, be valuable. And so that when something comes up, rather than jump to one side or another, we, active listening, productive communication learning how to find a solution that brings in other individuals. We'll already have that down. We'll already know how to do that, even though the problem may may switch and change and some are more difficult than others. We'll already have an an insight as to how we can do that. So I think the goal, if a church is just engaging in this conversation for the sake of it, is to learn how to solve problems, how to engage in conversation that solve problems rather than uh, you know, rather than just argue with one another. I think that, that is a worthy goal at this point in
1: time.
0: Mm. You know, as, as we kind of think about um, the Christian kind of view to kind of engaging some of the issues that we've talked about, um, you know, I, I think about uh, galatians three twenty eight and um, I just want to read it and then I, I kind of want you to respond to it. um galatians three twenty eight says this Paul is writing to this church that's dealing with Jews and Gentiles, and there's some problems there. And he says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So just as a pastor, you know, because I've had to preach on this passage, I just want to kind of say this and kind of, you know, it's funny because some people will focus on just you're all in Christ and other people will focus on the fact that Paul calls out these individuals and identifies them. (laughs) But really, I I think the power of this passage is kind of to your principle of building things together. Yes, you're created in the image of God. Yes, everybody's a level at the foot of the cross. But each of you has different experiences, and so we're not afraid to identify those experiences. And I think that that's the vision that Paul and Christianity is giving, that I can see how we're being brought together, but I can also understand the experiences and differences of people. I don't know. What would you add to that? Do you disagree or agree with that?
2: Yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry. You did cut out a little bit in there, but I, I think I got the gist of the question. Uh, you know, the way I see that passage is what, what I think Paul is saying is that everyone is an image bearer mm. and no matter what your status is in there. So everyone's an image bearer. And I think that it has profound implications as to how we treat people because what it, I mean, one of the implications, which is 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 you know a challenge, is if everyone's an image bearer, then no one has to do anything to earn my love. Mm-hmm. They're image bearing Christ, and therefore I I should love them no matter what they do. Uh, so this is really a basis for agape love. That that uh, it also means that I should be concerned with what concerns them, even if it doesn't concern me, even if it's, even if it's not something that. I particularly care about if they care about it and impacting them I should care about it mm-hmm. and and so to me this really changes not just race but just how we should be approaching one another and how we should be treating one another uh you know it's it's impossibly pol- polarized I believe if I see everyone as an image bearer because I may disagree with them uh I may you know I may they, they may not appreciate what I'm trying to do for them because they may say, well, that's not, that's not how I experience love and, and, and that's fine. But my goal should be, how can I do what's best for them? How can I love them the best? And so, uh, you know, and I think that this is part of, of my approach towards club conversations because if I'm trying to find a solution for me and my group, and I don't care what happens to your group as long as my group is taken care of, then that's not a Christian solution. It can't be a Christian solution. A Christian solution has to take into consideration what other people want and to know what that is, what they think is important. I have to engage in a conversation with them where I understand where they're coming from, where I accurately perceive their needs and try my best to help try to meet those needs. Doesn't mean that I throw away my needs does not mean that at all. It means that I try to find a, a way that I can, and this is what I'm trying to teach my, my boys. Can you find a way that you're still happy and they're happy too? Because that's sustainable. Then they then they play a long time. But if one of them, one of them is not happy, he's going to create havoc. And then, you know, there's always an arguing. And of course, you know, you, you all know this, that that there's not peace in the house when the boys are arguing all the time or the kids are arguing all the time. And so, but if we, if everyone is satisfied, even if they don't get everything they want, they're satisfied, then we have peace and people are, are, are happy. That should be where, where we're at. Uh, unfortunately, we're not that way a lot of times. Uh, we think that the goal is to maximize what we can get for us or our group. Uh, and that passage just, it should kill that, that sort of idea that we're all image bearers, and therefore, no matter where you're at, I should care about you deeply. Oh.
1: <clears throat> What's, uh, you know, <laughs> you mentioned uh, the the kids, there's no peace in the house when the kids are arguing and sure that, I think <laughs> we all know that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the battles that are going on even amongst, I mean, even at, in that scenario with kids, there's. They're, they're arguing over something, but there might be other things that are um, feeding that, you know, just uh, maybe they didn't get enough sleep the night before or something, you know, there could be something else um, that's not being spoken, um, maybe that they're not even aware of, and as parents, we might be aware of. Um, but what, you know, what have you found? And so, so you, some of these conversations, maybe conversations that have been productive that you've seen um, people who are really trying to get beyond racial division, what are some of the things simmering under the surface that people don't originally want to talk about or maybe don't even know that they don't want to talk about um, that you have to have to get to in order to start having, not just talking, but a productive conversation? What what have you found?
2: Yeah, so in, in the social sciences, there's something called confirmation bias. And I think that that's a lot of what drives a lot of it. And, Governmental bias, I believe, is driven by ethnocentrism. So for the way I see it, it, works like this. So I want something for me or for my group or something like that. Uh, that desire is there. I'm not saying it's sinful in and of itself, but it could be an obsession where, you know, it could, be, it could turn into greed, obviously. So I want something, but I have to justify it. It's not enough for me to say, look, you know, I want this, therefore I have that, because I know that in society that's not good enough. So uh, confirmation bias. So that's ethnocentrism. Confirmation bias is our tendency to 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 uh, look at uh, ideas and and data and evidence that we like in a more favorable light than, than and, and so we 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 emphasize st- information that that uh, conf- conforms to what we believe or what we want, and we emphasize the one that doesn't. And, <clears throat> You know, I use this sort of as an example in my in my my classes. I, I'm not talking about confirmation bias, but I think it's a good illustration for that. So if you're following a sports team and uh, you, they're playing basketball, you know, and the guy drives in the lane, another guy gets in the way, and they run to each other, whether it's a charge or whether it's whether it's a uh, a blocking foul depends on confirmation bias a lot of times. And, and mm-hmm. when we all done this. When our team, when our team's in defense, we're looking for all the evidence that was a charge. When our team's on offense, we'll go all the evidence is blocking. And so we want to, we want to say the refs, you know, have uh, have have nothing good to us because we want to justify that that they're ripping us off. Uh, unless we get the c- call that we want, then the refs, of course, are are, are great. That's confirmation bias in in, in, a, in a fun sense. But we do that we do that with our political views. We do that with our religious views too. To be honest. Uh, you know it, it's hard to get away from confirmation bias. I think that this is an underlying thing, and so when people discuss, I, I, you know, I was just uh, reading uh, something from uh, Kendi. and Kendi was was talking about the uh, the, uh, the, 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 the the January sixth uh, riots versus the the riots uh, or or confirm or or, or information. Uh, you know, in 2020, all the protests and some of them turned to rise. And so the first thing he said was, you know, uh, well, 93% of that, and I don't know if he gets his numbers, but 93% of the 2020 protests were peaceful. There's only 7%. And of that 7%, you know, a lot of that was the police being violent, not the protests being violent. Now, that's kind of convenient because that doesn't come, I mean, I'm not trying to defend either one, but what percentage of the people in January 6th who were there for the rally were violent? Was it seven percent or more? We don't know. Can he can he out that information? And I am not picking on Kenny because he's anti racist. I am just saying that we all do this. Mm. Uh, how do you know that that a lot of the seven percent was police initiated? You know, what's that based on? Is it based on anecdotal evidence or is it based on something systematic? How do you know that? The, you know, from, from my point, of, you know, from what I've heard, you know, there is police violence in January 6th. A police shot a woman down. You know, what percentage of that was police initiated? We don't know. So we do this. We, we we focus in on the information that makes our point look good, and we ignore other information. I don't know whether Kenny's right or not. I don't know whether or not, you know, just based on what he's saying, you know, I don't know whether or not as a percentage of violence that jailers is more violent than 2020. I don't know. But I can't go on what he says because he's leaving out information. Whereas as a scholar, I'm taught to... uh and this happens among scholars, too. But I'm taught to you know, ask questions such as, I can't just say it's 93% was peaceful and January 6th was more violent unless I have some information on January 6th. That sort of reasoning we don't tend to have because we want the answer that we want. Mm. And in this way, kind is not really different from anyone else. We had this confirmation bias. When you come into discussion with that sort of bias, with that sort of focus. Uh, that you that you know you're going to only look at information that's going to make you look good and disregard the other information. We can't have productive conversations because we're not open to learning mm. from others. So th- I, this once again, I want to emphasize: this is something that is universal. This is not something that's just done by colorblindness or anti-racists or people in the middle. It's done by all of us, and unless we're willing to learn, we'll be plagued by this confirmation bias and ethnocentrism, and we won't find answers that's going to serve everyone. We're gonna find answers to serve ourselves. And that's the danger that we run into. So, our
0: our target audience is, you know, somebody in their 20s, which your full-time job is basically uh, individuals yeah. in their 20s. And, you know, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners, you know, as you kind of go through people's decades from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, what are some of the similarities? What are some of the differences? What, are, I mean, bring us into your classroom. Um, you know, yeah. how are these conversations going that might surprise our listeners um, who may have been out of college for a, a while?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I do think that there is a, I think there is uh, whether it's an age effect or cohort effect, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I think people in the twenties do discuss this differently than people in their sixties and seventies. Uh, I think that for people in their 20s and 30s, they're more open to the notion of institutional uh, discrimination than those in their 60s and 70s. And it's understandable, in the and, those in their 60s and 70s, the big issue that they grew up with, that they struggled with, that they may have struggled personally with, uh, was treating people the same, the exact same. So individualized type of, of racism. And so, and, and, they, and they saw plenty of examples of that around. And so I think that they struggle with that more than those in the 20s and 30s, where, you know, they grew up in a society where it is not—it is stigmatized to say you'll discriminate against someone based on their race. Uh, you know that to say that is stigmatized in our society today. Uh, those older, it was not stigmatized. Now it's stigmatized today, and they realize that today, but it was not stigmatized to them growing up. And so for them, that's where the fight is. Uh, for those in the 20s and 30s, they're they're struggling with institutional issues, and what does it mean? Uh, and, and they're more open to struggling and recognizing that than those in the 60s and 70s. Uh, my suspicion—I don't have any data on this—I'm not going to just throw out numbers. Uh, and and <laughs> my suspicion is that if you're looking at colorblindness, you're going to find that more in the, in the people are in the 60s and 70s, and less in the 20s and 30s. You'll find more anti-racism among the younger than among the older that that's my suspicion uh once again I don't have I don't have any numbers to back that up but that's my suspicion
0: how how would you encourage our listeners you know especially uh, you know our younger ones um, you know to to maybe engage differently with you know the elders and the elder because I think that mm. you know the the false choices either I have to correct everything that my parent or grandparent says, or I just have to eat it and not say anything at all. How, how would you encourage our, you know, our younger listeners that might be more sensitive to this issue to maybe deal with it in a Christian way?
2: Yeah. You know, my advice to the young, be my advice to everyone really is uh, if you're running across someone who you disagree with racially, you should approach them not at least initially not with an attitude of confrontation, but of curiosity. In other words, you should be curious, why does this person believe the way that they believe? And you can be curious in a way where you don't have to feel like I have to believe what they believe, but why does this person believe the way that they believe? Uh, How do they come to that conclusion? You know, it makes sense to them, why does it make sense to me? If you do that, then you'll learn more about who they are. And Hmm. if you want to persuade people and this is going to be a much more effective than what we do on social media because people are not persuaded when you insult them. Surprise, surprise, uh, on social media. Uh, I mean, you, you persuade people to build rapport. So if you're talking about your relatives, hopefully you already have some rapport with them by, uh, by acknowledging when they have a good point, by accurately understanding what they have to say. Cause if, if you, if you are, if you are, you know, if someone, uh, Disagrees with you on something, say let's just say uh, on immigration, and you go right in and say, "Oh, you do this because you don't like Hispanics," and and they don't see themselves, and that's not how they see themselves, and it may be true that they don't that that's not true about them. Then they are not going to be persuaded on your point of view. They're going to say, "Well, you don't even understand where I'm coming from, so why should I listen to you?" So you have to understand accurately where, where they're coming from. Uh, you know. I had to find areas of agreement. Research has shown that this is this is how effectively we persuade other people. That you know, building rapport, finding what we agree upon. I mean, when they have a good point, that's how you persuade people. And so, to, to get to that point, you got to be curious. You got to you got to be curious about what they really believe, and then you can engage in a conversation that's productive rather than one that's just confrontational. Mm. So I don't limit this to the young. I think that all of us can learn how to do this, and and I'm I'm a work in progress. I I, I like to say that you know this is what I do all the time. I wish it was. I mean, I wish it was what I did all the time. Uh, But I'm I'm trying to be more that way, especially when I discuss some of these issues.
1: Hmm.
0: You know, just the last two questions. Um, You know, I, I loved how you brought up before. Uh, you said, I wrote about race till 2010, and then in 2020, I had to pick it up. And, you know, I think, you know, something that I've heard from some individuals, um, and I'm gonna just try to be t- as sensitive as possible, cause I kinda wanna hear your response. Um, you know, we've tried in Why God Why to intentionally, 50% of the people that we interview are female or minorities, and you know, <laughs> What I've heard, you know, from some of the individuals that I've talked to is, "Hey, um, I might be black or Hispanic. I don't necessarily want to talk about that. I want to talk about something else that I'm passionate about." And, you know, I, I just think that that's really, really important um, because even now, when I study for a sermon, I'm looking for commentaries that are written by people from different times, different races, and trying to bring that all in. And I guess my suspicion is, and I'd like to hear from you, you took kind of a sabbatical from writing about racism, help our listeners kind of understand the personal reasons why you made that decision and why you came back to talk about it in 2020.
2: Yeah. You know, I felt in 2010, I said everything I had to say about racial issues. You know, I had the book beyond racial redlock and and I felt pretty good about it. transcending racial barriers, uh, which was written by a secular uh, academic publisher. So I felt like I could talk to both Christians and non-Christians Is out there. I felt like if I was going to continue to research, I would just say the same thing over and over again. I've seen some professors that, you know, they, you know, one in particular, I won't give his name, has published like 50 books, and they all said the same thing. <laughs> I did not want to be him. And so I said, you know, I have other things I'm interested in. You know, I was interested in anti-Christian bigotry at that time. I've I seen some... some and it was an area that had not been researched and I saw some evidence of it. And so I studied that. I, I was interested in, in atheists. I was interested in, in cultural progressives. Uh, you know, I was interested in other things. And so I said, you know, I've done, I've done my share. Someone wants to come ask me to talk. I'll come talk, you know, uh, but that's not where my focus is. Uh, and so that kind of was what, what drove me is that I just, I just felt like I didn't have anything to say. Part of what's bringing me back <clears throat> is that, you know, I, I I made an argument uh, in 2010. I didn't look at the data to support that argument, hmm. uh, and so now I want to do that. I, I want to do research to show that climate conversation is a better approach. Uh, and so, uh, so in that sense, you know, I, ha- I have I have a renewed interest in doing research on racial issues and and, and uh, promoting uh, what I think is a better way. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's an accurate that you know. I don't want to be just known as a african-american guy you know there's much more to me than that uh, i'm not denying that it's part of my social identity all fair game it's more important for me that i'm a child of, of, of god that's more important than being black you know there's other things about me that are, that, that are important too uh you know the fact that i'm a male the fact that i you know i live in texas you know there are other parts of my social identity as well so uh so yeah uh I think, I think it is good to not just have blacks and women on to talk about race and gender.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. Well, we'll close with Jesus cause that's probably a good place to kind of close. So the question we always ask is, and the question we've been asking today that we've really hit direct and indirectly is why can't we get along with our neighbors of other races? So like a good professor, Aaron and I are going to answer and then we'll let you close and clean up whatever mess we leave. Does that sound good? <laughs> <Okay>. Sure. <laughs> You want to go first, or you want me? You go the semester. Yeah. Oh. You know, i I would just give our listeners one, one piece of advice. Um, whether you're not a Christian or not, if you want to see uh, the vision of loving your neighbor, no matter what, um, how much money they make, no matter their race, just read the Gospel of Luke. Um, the whole theme of the Gospel of Luke is telling Jesus's story, and It's about the great reversal. So, you know, there's tax collectors that were looked down upon in society. Luke elevates them. There's women who are looked down in society. Luke elevates them because that's what Jesus is doing. And I think that the step that I would give you is if you're struggling with how the church is responding or how Christians are responding, the essence of how Jesus lives out this truth of people being created in his image, people who are of different ethnicities, whether they're Gentiles or Jews, it's worked out in this book of Luke. And I just think it's foundational for us to have these conversations. And a lot of what uh, Dr. Yancey has said today, it's foundational of the way Jesus treated people in being created in the image of God, you'll see it on display in that gospel.
1: Yeah, oh, well, yeah, and thanks, Peter, for saying that. I, I thank you also, um, George, Doctor Yancey. <laughs> I got you're still a professor. I got to call you Doctor <laughs> Gansy. So, um, thank you for being part of this conversation today. Um, you know, I think Peter, it's an important matter and important subject. Um, and and you're right. We kind of we hit that question uh, indirectly and directly throughout. At the end of the day, I think you know Jesus wants us to he calls us to, to, to love our neighbors. And maybe some of the reasons, whether it's, whether, you know, why can't we get along with neighbors of other races? That's the title of the podcast. I think often we can, we often don't get along with neighbors of different, um, of other differences too. Um, and it's a lot of that is, I think we don't see each other. We don't listen to each other. And I, I kind of feel like that's where George is going with a lot of the idea of we need to not just be talking past each other. We need to be listening, seeing, um, having real conversation and um when you can see people as real people uh, in your life that's that's uh that's when the relationship can happen and that's when if there are wounds that heal healing can happen too so um and I, i think that the uh jesus has a role for us as individuals in that um and i think he he wants our churches as communities to do that do something about that too so anyways i think it's an important conversation
2: Well, I don't know if I have very much clean up. I mean, you know, it sounds, <laughs> sounds great what you're saying. Uh, you know, I'll just say this, and this pertains to race. This pertains to a lot of things. You know, one thing guys worked on me, uh, ever since I actually come back to race is the whole idea of, of other people's image bearers. Uh, that, to me, that's so that's so revolutionary because, uh, you know, uh, if we get to the point to where people do not have to earn our, our love and care, that's going to change things. And so if we think about that before we, you know, put that, put that next resort or retort on social media or, or look at someone who disagrees with us politically or racially or, or something like that and, and, and think about who they are. And, and we see everyone as either a neighbor or a brother and sister in Christ. Uh, to me, that is so revolutionary. And I'll just leave with this, uh, you know, the Samaritans were every bit as uh, hated as any group that we, we might hate in our society, be it racially, politically, whatever. The Samaritans were hated. And, you know, I'm not a theologian, but I've, I've studied enough about that to know there, there are reasons why they were hated, and a lot of the same, same sort of things that happened to us. How did Jesus treat the Samaritans? You know, just just go back, look at the woman in the well, look at the story of the good Samaritan. How did Jesus treat the Samaritans? Go and do Likewise. And if we did that then in a post-christian world the church would would regain a mighty witness so uh, so i'll just live with that and and i think that that is you know it's is powerful and thanks for having me on the show
0: we're really glad to have you um we want to encourage all of you uh from the two weeks that this podcast is out you can use the code why god uh to buy uh george's book uh beyond racial division uh george if people are looking for you where else can they find you
2: uh you know it's george is is easily uh but you spell yancey with an e y-a-n-c-e-y not not c-y because that's a different george yancey. uh and also you know obviously i i, I teach at baylor i'm in the department of sociology so if you want to just you know look at my 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 baylor email there you can do that so so yeah uh i am on facebook and twitter so uh those are the two I've, i know i know people are saying well, who's on facebook well, I'm, I'm there because, uh, as old people. uh i'm doing Twitter, so i'm doing some of the young people things but i am on
0: facebook oh man well thank you so much for joining us you can find us at whygodwhypodcast.com click the subscribe button you'll get this podcast and many others thank you for joining us